everyone to the Pat Conroy Literary Center in conversation with Executive Director Jonathan Haupt. We hope you enjoyed tonight's conversation and stay tuned for Jonathan. Hey out there in radio land, this is Jonathan Haupt. Welcome to another episode of Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center. And I am in the Conroy Center, as far as you know. Maybe I'm in my house. How would you know? But I am definitely in good conversation this evening with novelist Kathleen M. Rogers. Uh, Kathleen is a native of Clovis, New Mexico, and the author of four novels, most recently The Flying Cutterbox, which was published earlier this month in June by Wyatt McKenzie. Her stories and essays have appeared in Family Circle and Military Times, in addition to a number of anthologies. And three of her aviation poems from the book, Because I Fly, were featured in an exhibit at the Cradle of, education, Cradle of Aviation Museum excuse me, on Long Island. Her debut novel, The Final Salute, was featured in USA Today, the Associated Press, and Military Times, and that's not a, not a bad track record in itself. Her second novel, Johnny Come Lately, received multiple awards, including the 2015 Gold Medal for Literary Fiction, from the Military Writers Society of America. Kathleen's third novel, Seven Wings to Glory, which addresses themes of racism and war, won an honorable mention in the military category in the 2017 Forward Indie Book of the Year Awards, and it was shortlisted for the 2017 Somerset Awards. And her fourth novel, which I get to talk to her about tonight, Flying Cutterbucks, was published earlier this month, but it's already been named an official selection of the Pulpwood Queen's Book Club, which is the largest book club in the U.S., and a connective thread that first introduced Kathleen and I to one another. Kathleen and her husband, Tom, who is a retired Air Force fighter pilot and commercial airline pilot, live in North Texas with their two rescue dogs. Kathleen's a fellow rescuer of pets something else we have in common. So welcome, Kathleen, to live from Pat Connery Literary Center right here on the Authors on the Air Global Network. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm so happy to be here. And I'm, I'm here in North Texas in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, we moved here in 1992 when Tom retired from the Air Force and started flying for American. I still have family in Clovis, New Mexico, and so I'm, I have a love for my hometown. Oh, that's fantastic. I want to talk to you a little bit about small towns and hometowns and the town that is the, the centerpiece for the Flying Cutter books in a second here as well. But before we even get to that, I just want to say congratulations on the novel. It's not even a month old, and I see it everywhere. And you've been, you know, even amid the pandemic where you, it's so difficult to be in, with anyone in person on a book tour, you've been everywhere uh, online, virtually. I've seen you do a lot of interviews, both print and um, uh, other blog interviews. So you've, you've been getting a lot of really wonderful coverage and feedback for the novel, and I'll congratulate you on all of that. It's uh, super exciting to welcome you here to the show this evening. Thank you. And this is, Jonathan, this is an incredible opportunity, and I want to thank you for inviting me to be on the uh, your author for the June edition uh, Pat Conroy, I read him in 1979, and uh, the great Santini, right after I married a fighter pilot, Tom asked me, hey, would you read this novel? It's about a Marine fighter pilot, and Tom was Air Force. And when I read the great Santini, that was my introduction to Pat Conroy. I fell in love with his voice, 
I read that novel four times and went on to read many other of his books. But he gave me permission as a young fighter pilot's wife and aspiring novelist, and I was freelancing. He gave me permission to write about military subjects or, or warriors, if you will, and military families, but not in, that tra- not in the tradition of, you know, military, action-packed, shoot them up, but to plan them into this family story with social issues. And um, from then on, I was hooked to Pat Conroy. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. And I, I'd read some remarks you had made about uh, that novel, The Great Santini, and as you have said, giving you permission to write about service members and military families. And, and you're right, mm-hmm. you're categorized it perfectly. It's not a combat novel. There are any number of very fine aviation combat novels. The Great Santini is not one of them. Pat wanted to tell the story of the family, which he did, and uh, as so many other people have gotten to do since. But that's really sort of a quintessential Conroy novel. Uh, this is not a, an hour in which we get to talk that much about Pat, but I'll tell you just a quick story <laughs> about that book. Uh, I was taking Pat to the University of South Carolina on campus to talk about creating a high school writing contest, a contest that exists to this day that I get to judge this year. But we were in one of the administrative buildings filled with, uh, you know, all these upper echelon administrative folks who meet and interact with famous people all, all day long and are really sort of nonchalant about it. I walk in with Pat Conroy, and I saw actual swooning. I thought swooning was just something that happened in novels and films. I'd never actually seen somebody nearly pass out at the sight of another human being. But it happened when Pat Conroy walked in, and uh, one of the administrators, whose name and rank I won't mention because she may very well be listening tonight, but she came up to Pat, and she was trying to remember the, the name of the novel, The Great Santini, and she could not come up with it. It just was not coming to her. And she said, I really love your book about the fighter pilot. And that is the first and only time I have ever heard that book described that way because it's the family. It's uh, it's Ben Meacham and his mother and his sister that most people are drawn to when they talk about that book with me. So I'm so glad that that's what what, what you read into it, not just the story of the larger-than-life fighter pilot. But of this, this well, Jonathan, family. can I throw can I throw this in that coming from a fighter pilot family, and a, mm-hmm. way back in the day when Tom was active duty and 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 I was surrounded by fighter pilots, I was so young then. Uh, they had a saying. There's a line in the Great Santini where Bull Meacham comes in, make way for a fighter pilot. A fighter well, pilot. that yeah. became a joke within fighter pilots and families. And I think in my correspondence to you one time, I said. Instead of make way for a fighter pilot, I said make way for a writer. And I was referring yeah. to, you know, that line. So so some of us from that background, we totally, re- we totally, we were maybe, um, the book did something for us with just a fighter pilot. And, and he wasn't perfect. But um, so, and, and of course, Ben, the, the son and um, Tumor. The black, the young black man tumor yes. who was the mm-hmm. son of uh, the housekeeper. Yeah, I so, mean, it's a really inclusive uh, pantheon of characters in a small southern town with the, which this military family is sort of thrust into and gets to discover along the way. A wonderfully robust novel. And I'm so glad you read it in the way that, that you did and that it has triggered uh, you know, this part of your writing life. 
And you, mm-hmm. you see, you know, every time I, I see you anywhere online, there you have this um, fan base, let's call them. It's, on, it's not quite the right term I'm looking for, but you have these wonderful supporters from, from military lives as well. And they too interact and are, inter, inter, are interwoven, let's say, in our circle of friends. I'm thinking of Terry Barnes, the author of uh, Spouse Calls, Messages from a Military Wife, and Karen Spears Zacharias, Gold Star Daughter, yes. an exceptional novelist as well. What's yes. it like for you as a writer to, to know that other military family, other military service people have your back, that, that they're, they're on your side and so supportive of what you're doing? It is the most amazing, amazing feeling. It's it's validating. It 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 confirms, you know, all these years I've been struggling to try to make it as a writer since I was 15 years old and on the high school newspaper, and I'll be 62 in October if I get through this pandemic. But um, uh, Terry Barnes, and I'm waiting to meet you in person, Terry, and also you, Karen. Terry and I... Uh, I actually met Terry through reading her columns years ago in Stars and Stripes. That's that international publication. She had a very Mm -hmm. popular column. Uh, Terry, I think you're listening in tonight. And uh, the column was Spouse Calls, and I think Terry had the column for seven years. And then um, I remember being timid and nervous to approach her, and she ended up writing about all three of my, my first three novels, in Stars and Stripes, and when my third novel, Seven Wings to Glory, came out, not only did Terry mention the novel one time, if that's not good enough, she turned around a few weeks later and wrote about the novel again, and I got this awesome review, like half a page. It was amazing, and was oh, able to get the wonderful. print version. And then Karen... Karen is an amazing person. She has endorsed my third novel, Seven Wings to Glory, and she came right back and was happy to endorse the Flying Cutter books. And I have so much respect for Karen. I'll get emotional talking about it. But the fact that Karen is a gold star daughter, her father David Spears was killed in Vietnam when she was, uh, what, eight or nine and that's where she got her book, the memoir, uh, I believe, is, is it After the Flag is Folded? I may have said is, the title yes. wrong. I apologize, Karen. But um, to have that kind of support, uh, there's other military spouses. Well, Karen's not a military spouse, but there's a strong group of military spouse writers that, um, that have supported me over the years. One is Andrea Williams. She runs Military Spouse Book Review. She's also endorsed this book. And uh, to get that from maybe your peers, if you will, who understand military life, but we're all still trying to kind of break out of that. We don't want to just be, oh, she's a military author. I I mean, I'm proud of that, but I want to be, Mm -hmm. I want to write kind of the mainstream and bring the military into the mainstream so the average person can see, hey, you know, just because this is a military family, they go through the same struggles as everybody else. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's a great strength of, of your writing as I've read it, that it's very authentic to the military family experience, but it's not written exclusively for members of that community. It is, it is a crossover mainstream uh, kind of writing and, and an exceptionally mm, successful you. one, I expect as well. 
So let's uh, dive into the book itself, The Flying Cutter Box. And, and what I was so struck with and, uh, immediately as I open this is that it opens slightly in the future. It opens just around the corner from where we are right now and sets mm-hmm. up this framework uh, with the 2020 election playing off of another moment and the 2016 election as well. And I'd love for you to talk about you know, the, the thought process of setting up uh, this framework, this moment that, that it's, you know, we're on the cusp of being where the novel is. It's just a little bit ahead of us in time. What, what's your thought yes. process for going that route? Okay, Jonathan, I'll just say this. The one thing I could not predict is the pandemic, and I'm glad. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so, so I'll be honest. When I thought the novel was finished October 2018, I was so happy uh, to turn that in on a trip to New Mexico where the novel set. I went home for my 60th birthday. I was so happy to send it to my agent in D.C., Diane Nine. She's owned her agency over 30 years. And, uh, and I thought that was it. And then we finally, Wyatt McKenzie came on board in 2019. And the publisher, mm-hmm. Nancy Cleary, she's such a visionary. She said, uh, we had a conference call, uh, Nancy and my agent and I, and she's like, Kathleen, is there anything we can do to kind of bring it up fast forward? And we brainstormed with Nancy. I hung up the phone. Uh, I sent my agent the idea for a quick little couple of paragraphs to open it and the idea to fast forward the final chapter, which is the eve of the 2020 election. And... Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the chapter one opens October 2016. I was, I'll be honest, Jonathan, I'm not really a political person, but some things have happened the past three years that for me, I had to, I had to incorporate certain things into this novel. I had the idea for the story years ago, just the basic story. And then when everything started happening, my agent was totally on board. She goes, do it. Do it the way you want to do it. Mm-hmm. And then the election is kind of in the background. And that sets the tone for how my strong women characters are triggered by some things that happen politically. And it triggers some memories of some things that happened in the past. It's very authentic to the novel. These are full-fledged, fascinating, strong women characters, and they can't live in the world that you and I live in and not react to it. So, you know, that, 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 that element of the novel never seems forced. It always seems to be perfectly organic. This is the world, and this is how these women would react to that world. So I think it's handled just beautifully. It's such a strong aspect of the book. Uh, and a through line throughout. It's not just uh, in those bookend moments at beginning and end. There's callbacks to that, to uh, uh, our political climate throughout the book and, and handled just expertly every single time. Thank and you. So. Thank you, Jonathan. I thank you. And thank you for reading my work. Uh, I don't want to start bawling, but it, it truly, <laughs> to be having this conversation with you, after all these years of thinking, you know, Jonathan, Johnny Bernhard, Johnny, I know you're yes, listening. Johnny our, our knows very my good secret. friend. Yes, our very good friend who was at the Pat Conroy Center last Thursday, the 18th, because I'm a date right. person. And you all sat outside <laughs> and social distanced and everyone behaved and wore their mask, except when Johnny talked. But 
I was on the phone with Johnny the other day, and I was whining, which I tend to do. You know, my glass is always half empty, and Johnny reminded me. And she said, Kathleen, what is it you told me a long time ago? What's the one thing all you've ever really wanted as a writer? It's not book sales. It's not popularity. What is it? And I said, I want to be taken seriously as a writer. And so I I feel like I am right now at this moment. Oh, you definitely are right now. You are the real deal, Kathleen Rogers, a serious writer through and through, cover to cover in this novel, and I'm sure that's true of your earlier works as well. So it's a pleasure to get to share your voice and your book with all those folks listening here to the show. But let's circle back to the book itself, too. I mean, we've, we've talked about the, the layering of the of the. Um, sort of political bookend moments and the through line of that too. But at the heart, this, this is really a novel that has an element of mystery to it. There is a, a figurative and a literal unburying of secrets from the past and sort of testing of the bonds of family and friendship and love between these, these family members. Is that the core idea? You mentioned that you had the, the idea for the story uh, a while ago. Is that the core idea that you had initially? Yes. Yes, I, yes, I knew I wasn't quite sure, you know, I didn't, things come to me in bits and pieces. I write in bits and pieces. I'm not an outliner. I guess I'm a pantser, but I always write, I know the ending, but I write towards that. It's kind of like slapping Mm -hmm. together a sandwich. You know, you've got your two pieces of bread and then you've got your filling, whatever that's going to be. But uh, I always knew that there would be this dark moment that happened. And in my story, it happened October of 1974. And I knew that it would involve at least three of my uh, female characters with the fourth one. uh, She was, Jewel was kind of missing in action there for a while. She was off somewhere. And uh, I had to figure out how to take current events, the political current events, Weave those and then have two of my chapters, chapter two, and oh, I forget, I'm not looking right now at it, but those are flashback scenes or chapters, and what I did for those, chapter two and uh, chapter maybe five or six, those are flashback scenes, and what I did there, I switched to present tense and wrote them as if it was happening right at that moment, because it gave me a feeling of a sense of urgency as I wrote it. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, if I'm feeling that, maybe my reader will feel it. And uh, it all, I'm looking at the novel now thinking and hearing you, you know, talk to me about it. I'm like, I don't really know who wrote that novel because it's sure <laughs> not the person sitting here at my desk. <laughs> That's oh. wonderful when the story and the characters take over and, and you take a big artistic risk. And I noticed that in those two chapters that we have flashback chapters in the present tense, but it gives an immediacy to it. It pulls the reader into that moment and you experience it alongside those characters second by second by second. And it's so powerful. It's such a good choice, Kathleen. Really Thank is. you. Let's talk, but you, we've mentioned a couple of characters, and we've not really run our cast list here, uh, so let's do justice to the Cutterbuck family. We've got Trudy, Sister Georgia, Mother Jewel. Tell us about, tell us about these women. 
Where do they okay. come from? Who are they? Okay, Trudy Cutterbuck is the protagonist. So we see everything through her viewpoint. Uh, the story is third person, as you know, but everything is yeah. seen through her viewpoint, unless there's maybe a, a letter that her father might have written sent from Vietnam. Um, but uh, Trudy is, uh, what, almost 58. She has retired from flying for Southwest as a flight attendant, but I love, I'm going to be old school, but, you know, she started flying back in the days when they were called stewardess, and, you know, she wore the cute little hot pants and the go-go boots, and um, so she started flying in the late 70s, but she's returned from Dallas, Texas, to Pardon, New Mexico. Now, Pardon, New Mexico is my little fictional town, and her mother, Jewel, lives on the outskirts of Pardon. Two miles away from the family home, there is what used to be the Pardon Air Force Base, and that base has since closed. And then we, so we've got Trudy at home with Jewel. Jewel is 79 when the story opens. And then Trudy has a sister named Georgia, who's two or three years younger. Georgia lives in another town in New Mexico. In, the town is Las Vegas, New Mexico. That is a real town in uh, northern New Mexico. It's gorgeous. Everyone wants to go to Taos or Santa Fe. Y'all, yeah. Las Vegas, New Mexico is happening. And That's then in Las, yeah, then in Las Vegas is also Aunt Star, Star Hearn. Star is the oldest sister, so there's Star and then Jewel. And Star is 81 when the story opens, and she's a retired nurse and an activist. She's, I think she's my favorite character. Oh, and she then, is of course, an amazing character. Thank you. And then, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but the patriarch, if you will, in the story was Major Shep Cutterbuck. Shep was a fighter pilot, and he went to Vietnam and went missing in action. And when he took off, he took off from when that base was open back in the day, in the 70s. And that's the last place Trudy saw her father alive, is when his jet took off to go to war. And then there's uh, another element, another character we meet through memories, and his name is Bogey. Bogey's his nickname, and he was 11. He was the little brother. And, um, and then we have our villain, and his name was Cousin Dub. And uh, I don't want to say too much about Dub, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, we will, we will be protective of some of the big reveals and the mystery of the novel in our conversation, mm-hmm. of course. But these, this is such an amazing family, such strongly rendered characters. And we have, uh, you know, the, the males are all absent in, in various ways and for various reasons, but they're very much present in the story as well through memory, through the, the way that they have shaped these lives of the characters for better and for worse. And you do this mm-hmm. interesting thing with, uh, with the father, with Shepard in particular, of sort of the way that his voice is still present for Trudy. And it's almost a, an element of magical realism. Uh, would you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, thank you, Jonathan. I love to incorporate magical realism in my novels. Even in The Final Salute, my first novel, which the main character was mm-hmm. a fighter pilot, I didn't really know what I was doing then, but... I did it there through the voice of a, of a late of a dead grandmother. 
But in this book, so so Major Shepard Cutterbuck is missing in action, and he was uh, Trudy was what maybe I forget twelve ish or so when when he went to war, but when when before Shep went off to war, Shep and Jewel when they were younger, they had the the house out there halfway between the Air Force Base and the town of Carden and a big backyard and a nice patio. So anytime there were like squadron, you know, cookouts and parties, all the fighter pilots and their wives would come over to the Cutterbuck house. So Trudy would have had the opportunity as a child to overhear lots of conversations with fighter pilots sitting around flying with their hands and telling, you know, flying stories. And the magical realism is at, at very crucial moments, in Trudy's life now in the present and also in some of the scenes in the past. She hears her father's voice through what I like to term as like radio calls, like a pilot, a fighter pilot making a radio call. And Uh, right. And so I leave it up to the reader um, what they want to think. But uh, when the father started coming to me, and Jewel's husband. I kept thinking, and Jonathan, I have to tell you, the, the original idea for my story is like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write a novel without any military. I've done my military in all three novels. I'm going to do it. Well, and then old Shep Cutterbuck showed up, and I thought <laughs> I've already written a novel about a fighter pilot, and then I wrote, I'm not yeah. through yet. There mm-hmm. he is. He's circling yeah. back around. Yeah. The, uh, the writer and short story, uh, the short story writer and novelist Pam Durban has has come down to Beaufort and spoken a number of times about uh, what she refers to as the writer's required subject matter. These ideas that we circle back around to time and time again, whether whether we intend to or not, and that seems to be part of your required subject matter right now as well. And I'm so glad it is because Shep is is really this powerful character. And even in his absence, even in the absence of that voice that Trudy hears, we see the impact that this father, this good male figure has had on his daughter. And, and Shepard's such a well-chosen name because he really is a protector. He's, he's raised these kids right, and you see that in their adult lives. And Trudy is a rescuer of sorts. I mean, she, she is somebody who jumps in to help when help is needed. And we see that a couple of times with some of the animals in, in the story as well. And I asked if you might uh, give a short reading for us and, and the scene that you suggested immediately has a little bit to do with that. So if you wouldn't mind setting that up and reading for us, I'd very much appreciate that. Okay, thank you so much for asking me to read. Uh, so Trudy has rescued a big yellow dog. I, I don't want to say too much about the dog. Let's just say it showed up under the flagpole that flies the, the POWMIA flag, and she... So one morning she wakes up from this dream and she takes Zia outside to potty. All the dogs running around the backyard. Trudy's remembering this dream. She whips out her cell phone to capture the dream on her, on her notes, on her smartphone. So I'll just start reading. The dream that woke her at sunrise returned. As she walked to the edge of the patio to keep an eye on the dog, The dream reeled through her mind like an old memory, wanting to capture it in writing, help make sense of it. She pulled out her smartphone, opened the notes app, and began thumbing the keys on her screen. 
Alone on the shoulder of a steep mountain road, I stood in the bend of a hairpin curve and searched the deep canyon below. All I could see for miles were large boulders dotted with prickly pear cactus and the occasional glint of metal from some long-ago wreck. Then from somewhere behind me, the sound of children singing, 99 bottles of beer on the wall, echoed through the mountain pass. Whipping my head around, I watched Mama's station wagon careen around the curve in the road and sail over the side of the mountain. But instead of crashing into the canyon below, the station wagon sprouted wings and rode the thermals across a tranquil sky. As the sound of children's voices faded and I longed to join them, a passenger door flung open and bogey tumbled out. From my spot on the road, I thrust giant arms skyward, for I was the big sister, and it was my job to catch him. But no matter how far I stretched, I couldn't reach him, for my arms weren't long enough. When I woke up, my eyes leaked with tears, and Zia stared at me from her spot on the bed where she rested her chin on my belly. It's a beautiful sequence, beautiful dream sequence, so well written. And it's so revealing of the character, of, of the anxieties she has about her family and the absence of Bogey and her father. I mean, it, it's a wonderful sequence, Kathleen. It really is. Thank, Thank you so much you. for reading that and letting us it hear a little a, piece of, of the novel. Thank you. I, it was an emotional piece. I mean, I, I felt the emotion as I wrote it. Your, uh, the cover design of the book, which is in front of me, and I know not everybody mm-hmm. on radio land can see this, it's evocative of that scene. Is, is that intentional? I love this cover. Wyatt McKenzie, Nancy Curry, uh, she came up with five mock-ups. She sent them one Sunday morning through my agent. I opened them up. My eyes, my eyes leaked with tears. It was the second <laughs> one in. I, I knew it when I saw it. Uh, yes, oh, yeah. I think... I think Nancy, the publisher, I think that is maybe what she had in mind. And there's some other scenes in the book where there's the saying, you know, we're the flying cutter bucks. And also because the colors, it actually, my husband's like, well, Kathleen, you know, look at the colors. So the colors are red, kind of a yellow. Uh, Mm -hmm. The state flag of New Mexico is a red Zia symbol on a yellow background. Oh, and then I did not realize. Yeah. If you look, you know, I think it's a station wagon and, you know, the windows are down, there's hands. Yep. And I love the the children's there's like a child's hand in the passenger window in the, like the second seat. And there um, are extended out into the wind, into the air, as we've all done to sort of get just a tiny taste of that, of, of what birds do naturally, of flying, of the, that freedom, of the weightlessness of it. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful cover for a wonderful book. Thank you. And, uh, I, I'm you, very you proud it, of it. As, as you should be. You mentioned its connections or unintentional connections, perhaps, to the state flag of New Mexico. And earlier you mentioned Pardon, uh, this town that you've invented. 
it too is a character in this novel. It has it has an arc. It changes over time. People come and they return, and they bring uh, progressive ideas with them. There, there's something that's unfolding. It too is on the cusp of becoming a different version of itself, and it's it's uh, fully formed, fully generated in your imagination. I'm wondering uh, about the decision to do that, to 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 place the book in this small town where it's sort of haunted by the uh, air force base that's no longer there and the memories of that for the townspeople. Talk to us a little bit about creating pardon, about your thought process for the setting. Well, you know, writers that say they don't draw from the past and that none of their work is autobiographical. I don't quite believe them. Um, <laughs> I think for me, pardon Pardon, the, the name came to me. There's so many things if you think about, you know, pardon me. Uh, there's a yeah. line in the novel, you know, well, pardon me for, you know, coming from, you know, podunk, wherever. Uh, or, you know, so-and-so is pardoned. You know, someone's been in jail, you know, they get a pardon. Uh, or uh, pardon, you know, forgiveness. Um, but I set it down in this, in this uh, area in eastern New Mexico, which is only a few miles from the state line of West Texas. So this part of New Mexico really feels more like West Texas. And that plays into the story through our character, through uh, the viewpoint of Trudy. And this, in some ways, the Flying Cutter Bus is my love letter to Eastern New Mexico, where I was born and raised, and, and Jonathan, mm-hmm. where my writing roots go deep. I became a writer in eastern New Mexico, although I didn't really understand what that meant. Um, But pardon, um, it's hard for me to totally make up things. I can maybe see a town that I know of and maybe use that grid, if you will. I did that in my last two novels. There's a town in Texas that was kind of my grid, and then I plant my fictitious town there. Um, it was, if I can, if I can give meaning to a place in my story, where, however it comes to me, then my feeling is if it means something to me on multiple levels, even if it never comes across to the reader, that it'll, it'll help strengthen the story. Um, in pardon, and I think there's a line in chapter one, you know, it's, it, they missed, uh, you know, Route 66 by about 100 miles. That's yeah. kind mm-hmm. of an inside joke. Uh, and the town I'm from, Clovis, New Mexico, it's on Highway 84. You know, just to get on the interstate, you have to drive a ways. And uh, it's so funny when people, you know, I'll say, well, I'm from Clovis, New Mexico. And everyone I've met, oh, been through there. Uh, <laughs> once in a while, I'll meet someone who's actually from there or was stationed at the Air Force Base. Uh, mm-hmm. But but it's a place people pass on the way to other places. It's not a destination. Yeah. And, and you know, Pardon has, I'll, I'll confess to you, I was disappointed when I found out Pardon wasn't real because in my imagination, it's completely real because you create a real place in, in your writing. But Jonathan, but it, it, feels- it is real. It's real and now it's real to you. Quit mm-hmm. trying to Google it though. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Yes. 
oh, I mean, Mr. Conroy said, give me a world when he was, when he was talking about setting. He wanted something that felt fully formed, that felt real, even if it wasn't. And you've definitely done that with Pardon. Thank and that, you. And the name, which you've uh, alluded to, is so perfect. Mm-hmm. This is very much a novel about forgiveness and closure and people looking to be pardoned for the past. The past is this weight on the present. It's, it's unresolved, and it needs to be. And that's yes. what so many of these characters are looking for in Pardon New Mexico. So it's just a, a perfect alignment of theme and setting and names. And then I could, I and wanna... I'm the author. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. You get to set those roles, and, and you definitely did that. Uh, I want You've... you've twice now almost told us about the beginning of your writing life and I'm not going to let that go unnoticed you mentioned earlier that it sort of began as a teenager I think you said when you were 15 on a student newspaper yes. talk to us a little yes. bit about that when when did this become something you wanted to be Jonathan I was uh, I say 15 I, I, I graduated high school when I was 17 started college at 17 so I was kind of the baby in my class but mm-hmm. um uh, first day of my junior year, I went to home ec, and we were supposed to walk around with raw eggs in our hand. And I thought, you know, enough of that. I'm never getting married. I could care less about this. I hate this class. I think we were supposed to make little baby clothes for this raw egg. And if you dropped your raw egg, well, we know what happened to the baby. And I was complaining to a friend later in another class, and she, uh, I don't even remember now, and I'm I I feel bad. I can't remember who my classmate was. And they said, well, go talk to Mr. Cobb. He's the high school newspaper. See if you can. It's the same period as your home ec. Well, Mr. Bill Cobb had been my sophomore English teacher, and I loved his class. Oh, my gosh, Jonathan. I got on the high school newspaper. I went down to the counselor's office. They changed my schedule. You know what? That that changed my life. Um, my Senior year in high school, I won two awards there locally at the high school. I won Best Story and Most Improved Writer. And you can probably figure out Most Improved Writer because I didn't know what I was doing and I was learning. But Mr. Koff entered one of my stories into a state contest sponsored by New Mexico Press Women. And by golly, my story was a feature story it won first place in state for student writers and guess what it was about it was about uf sightings over new mexico and here's the title i love it to this day i am so proud of the of the headline and here it is it's ufo strange blobs of light whiz through the night and i love that heading yeah and um of course, I had no idea that got the attention of some people at Eastern New Mexico University. My sister, Laura, drove me down there. They hired me as a student writer at the information services, which, you know, might have been public affairs or whatever. And so, but I never got to see my paycheck. My, my paycheck helped pay my tuition. And uh, I wrote little, you know, student write-ups. And Mike Slinker was my boss. He I found his phone number a few years ago. He's living in Oregon now. He's got his PhD. He was shocked to hear from me and was so, uh, we talked about an hour. He said he never doubted that I would grow up to become the writer that I am. And I had a lot of people believe in me. Uh, the, the local newspaper um, managing editor, Bill Southard, he wrote novels 
in the morning at night under the name W.W. Southard. He won a $25,000 award from, uh, oh, let's see, what was the name of the publisher? Bantam House? No, I'm saying that wrong. Um, oh, yeah, Bantam ben- Books. Ben- Phantom Books, that's what you think. Yeah, Phantom Books Mm -hmm. back in the day, and he wrote these little slim westerns. And I think I didn't Mm -hmm. know at the time, but I think I was realizing he was modeling what it was like. I knew a real live novelist, and I tucked that away, and then I started writing another novel years ago. It's dead. I call it a cadaver in a bottom drawer. I will never (laughs) – 300 pages on typewriter paper from a manual typewriter. Yeah. But, um, every worthwhile I, writer has a has a dead manuscript in a drawer somewhere. Yeah, that's a good sign. But I have I have harvested from it for ideas, so it had its purpose. I was going to be the female James Michener write this five generation historical novel about a Methodist circuit writer, but that most of the circuit writer ended up on a historical marker in my second novel. So he did get to live <laughs> on the historical marker, uh, Reverend Jeremiah Harkins. But um, what I ended up doing, Jonathan, was uh, putting that away, and I started concentrating on just trying to build my, my portfolio or my resume as a writer yeah. and, mm-hmm. and the byline. Everything was a stepping stone. That's been my whole life as a writer since I was 15. And getting paid, you know, sending off the query, getting I am the queen of rejection, I do. I am the queen of rejection and the queen of self-promotion as well. But I just, I started building the byline, and I will, Jonathan. I'll just share you this. I'll never forget when Family Circle magazine said yes the first time. I sold six major stories to them over ten years, and they paid quite well. I thought then that was my big moment, but ten years, it didn't. That kind of writing. Um, I'm proud of my work, but it didn't feed my soul. It was fiction. It was a novel I wanted. So my mm-hmm. first novel took 16 years, over 100 revisions and rejections. And I just kept, you know, for any aspiring writers out there, they, I always read, you know, all you need is that one yes, because I'm traditionally published. I'm old school that way. And I finally got my yes. And you I became it. a novelist in 2008. You put the time in. You had a, a really wonderful progression. It's so wonderful to get that validation as a, as a young writer, too, from a teacher and an award. All of that means so much. I'm working with a group of kids at the Conroy Center last week and this week for our annual Camp Conroy, or summer camp. And I see how much it means to get that at a young age. Kathleen, we've got about two minutes left, and I want to do a shout-out to uh, the Pulpwood Queens because, as I mentioned in the introduction uh, to our interview, you have been selected as, a, as an official Pulpwood Queen book for, uh, for next year, for 2021. And that's uh, where you and I met through the Pulpwood Queens as well, too. So talk a little bit about what it means to you as a writer to be recognized by that organization as we near the end of our time here. Okay, the Pulpwood Queens, Kathy L. Murphy, if you're listening, she she's the founder. You know, it's the largest book club in the world, and it's, you know, readers and authors come together. When uh, I've been trying to get picked for six years, and uh, it, it finally worked. Kathy has picked the Flying Cutter Bucks for the 2021 Book of the Month selection. Jonathan, that is uh, all my hopes and dreams. It's it's finally paid off. But 
several of the writers, uh, other public queen authors, I'm going to name a few, who have endorsed this book are Anne Weisgarber, Johnny Bernhard, Mark Childress, and Karen Spears Zacharias, and two other Pulp Week Queen authors that endorsed my second and third novel were Anne Height and Barbara Claypole White. And, um, you know, I've been twice now, uh, 2019 and 2020. I would have never met you if I hadn't gone to East Texas. That's where you and I met, is through the Pulp That's Queen. right. Yeah. I want to thank you both for being on the show tonight. We're we're 15 seconds from from turning off. Um, thank you, listeners, and thank you, Jonathan and Kathleen. We are live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center, and we'll be back next month. Jonathan, two seconds for the final word. Thank you so much to Kathleen Rogers, uh, who is the author of The Flying Cutterbucks. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you for this time here on Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center, and we'll be back on the air next month. Thank you.